Hello, everyone. My name is Mark LeBlanc, and I'm the host of this week's episode of the video podcast, Marketing with a Book. Thank you for uh, joining us live. If you're in the studio audience or joining us um, and watching it on one of our uh, streaming channels. Um, I happen to be uh, the partner of Henry DeVries, who is the president of Indie Books, and he graciously gave me the title of chairman of the board. And uh, Indie Books is going to celebrate its seventh uh, anniversary of helping consultants and coaches and independent professionals write the right book. So often you hear people say, you should write a book. And unfortunately, a lot of people write, uh, a crap, they self-produce a crappy book. Almost worse are professionals who write a good book with the wrong title, the wrong subtitle, the wrong structured table of contents, and the good book has little impact. And so it is our mission to make sure that a book positions you and establishes you and your credibility as a thought leader, um, as the expert uh, in your field and what we like to think a category of one. Contrary to some uh, publishers um, and authors who tend to think it's about selling more books, we think it just might be about selling fewer books, but making sure that the book leads to more $10,000 keynote speeches, more consulting assignments, more coaching uh, engagements. And so we want to make sure that your book positions you properly for more of the good work that you feel called and compelled to do. We have an amazing guest today, Cindy Skalicki from Colorado, and I'm anxious to interview her and tap into her uh, treasure chest of uh, experience and expertise. But as usual, we will do a little bit of an author roll call um, where we just introduce ourselves and share either what book we are working on, soon to be released, or our next book. And I will start. Um, again, my name is Mark LeBlanc. I'm out of Minneapolis. And uh, later this year, we'll release uh, book number six titled Rainmaker Confidential. Uh, co-authored with Scott Love and Henry uh, DeVries. Uh, David, and then Steve, and then Mary. Thanks, Mark. I am David Goldman, and I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I wrote the book, uh, how, The Road to Happiness, How to Get What You Really Want. And uh, I'm happy to tell you I'm working on a book with Henry and Mark, uh, that will be due out early next year called Bringing in the Business, uh, how, to, um, how to Bring in More Business Without Feeling Like a Salesperson. Thank you, David. Steve. Hi, I'm Steve Brody from Houston, Texas. And the, the book that I published uh, several years ago is called What Happens After the Sale? Um, understanding the, uh, the personal and business journey uh, after the big event. So it's a case study of someone who was a client of mine and 
and what he went through during the whole process of, uh, of selling, selling a business. Thank you, Steve, and thank you for being with us today. Good to see you. Mary. Hello. I'm Mary Schmidt, based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and my book is Make or Break Conversations, How Smart Financial Professionals Land and Keep Clients for Life. And the whole premise is ditch the script and instead have a meaningful conversation that clients say, I want to work with you. Thanks. Thank you, Mary. So good to see you too. Well, moving right along, uh, let's bring um, our guest um, uh, into the picture. Um, I'll read a little bit about her. Um, her topic today, interestingly enough, is uh, why you need Aristotle's rhetorical triangle. Cindy has a fascinating bio and background. She is the owner of On Point Communications and has been referred to as America's top expert in evaluating persuasion effectiveness. Cindy has helped company founders raise millions of dollars in venture capital with the how-to model of message preparation uh, that she has developed she has personally trained executives at Microsoft, members of the Young Presidents Organization, YPO, the NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and entrepreneurs pitching to their longest running angel investor club in the United States on how to win multi-million dollar deals. On a personal note, thanks to her daughters, cooking expertise, she was invited to have lunch with the first lady at the White House. And I hope she will give us a minute in or two into that story. She hails from Chicago and bleeds cubby blue. Poor, <laughs> poor. Uh, uh, but but we're, we'll keep you. We'll, we normally <laughs> would you. stop. We normally would stop the interview right here, um, but we'll keep going. She has worked for global advertising and PR agencies in Chicago and Washington D.C., and earned a master's degree in rhetorical criticism from the University of Georgia in Athens. She now resides in Colorado with her husband and their four children, ages twelve to eighteen. Cindy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you so much. First, before I, I get into some of the questions, um, how did you get from where you were to today? Tell us a little bit about your background and your story. Sure, I would love to. I, as I, as you mentioned, I am originally from the Chicagoland area, and my story about how I got here really begins when I was in my undergraduate program at St. Mary's College, and I started to take a class called rhetorical criticism. And I want to explain the assignment we first got because it really helps everyone understand what I love to do. My professor there was Dr. Pauly, and he handed out our first assignment, and he gave us three pieces of paper that had a long script written out, the 
commencement address of Hillary Rodham Clinton was typed out on that on all those sheets of paper and they were all numbered lines. It was her 1992 address from Wellesley College to the graduates. And our job was to determine whether we thought that was an effective rhetorical act or not and why. So what that meant was, did, did we find her speech to be persuasive? And if we did, what did she do? And so we had to use Aristotle's triangle as our tool of analysis to make our argument for that paper. And so what I had to do was absolutely dive in and comb through every line of her speech and analyze it from the speaker perspective or ethos, from the audience perspective, which is pathos or heart or emotion, and then also from the third and final perspective, which is message or logos, and look at how she crafted that message and hit at head or logic. And that set the stage for just that's that's what I love to do, Mark. I love to. So when I if you just kind of jump forward 25 years, I've been doing that process my whole life, just in any of the jobs or positions that I have held. And what I love to do is evaluate the persuasive nature of people's messages. And that is that is how my brain works. And, and describe a typical day for you, um, either in the office virtually or who you might be out working with. Well, sure, I can do both of those things just based on the last few days. Last week, I was I flew out to Washington, D.C. and presented some seminars for uh, someone's annual conference. I was one of the facilitators, and I presented to some science and tech audience members two seminars. One was called Scientific Messaging Workshop, How to Master Your Scientific Messaging. This is a group of people in the HVAC industry. And then I presented a seminar on executive presence. And in both seminars, I always start out explaining that rhetorical triangle because it's the bedrock. It's the foundation of all the communication we all do all day long. So I do a lot of group work. And oftentimes I'll be asked to stay on and do one-to-one work with those folks. And then just before our time today, I was working with someone to determine some possible projects that we could do together on pitch decks. He has a pitch deck that he needs to really master. He has some presentation anxiety. And so I have to go through and detect, are we working on the content, the deck itself? Are we working on the person and their presence and delivery and rehearsal of the message, or is it both? And do you enjoy the one-on-one -on -one work uh, or the uh, group work or both equally? What, where, where do you think you really shine the brightest? Hmm. Gosh, um, I, I, yes, yes, both. <laughs> um, I'd say that I'm, I'm probably, hmm. The one-to-one -one is extremely rewarding because I get to work with a person and watch that person overcome obstacles that they brought in with me before we began to work together. Mm -hmm. So there's a different type of value for, for that type of relationship. And I'm really a lot like a counselor for some folks who have really been burned by previous poor experiences or potentially tough to hear feedback from superiors or 
teachers from high school or college, things really stick with people when it comes to public speaking. But I become so alive in front of a large group as well. And I, I just, I just, I love, I'm at home on the stage too. And so I can kind of get a group of, like I had a group last week of 10 science tech people just belly laughing like five, six, seven times. And that just, that makes my day too. So, um, so we have a good time in, in either of those environments and we make a lot of headway and progress toward message mastery. Nice. Well, speaking and becoming a professional speaker is not for the faint uh, of heart. Um, <laughs> I, I've been working at this for 39 years mm -hmm. and um, I bombed in my first paid professional speech in 1985. Oh, man. And it was my first fee. It was for $300. <laughs> and um, boy, it just really, it really put me back on my heels. And so um, I'm not sure what kept me in the game after that point, but um, Sometimes I share that I, I think I quit a thousand times Yeah. in Absolutely. that first 10 years. And fortunately, I re, uh, uh, recommitted myself a thousand and one. <laughs> Good for uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm living proof that you can bomb in your first paid professional speech and live to become the president of the National Speakers Association. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so, yes. So uh, that that should inspire just about anyone. Um, Cindy, were you ever hesitant um, or reticent about bringing something like rhetoric? Um, we don't hear that word a lot, uh, uh, either from the stage or behind the curtain in terms of preparing for a speech. Yes, I was hesitant about bringing that term into my coaching. I'm six years old, about a little younger than indie books, it sounds like, which is almost seven. And I was actually told not to bring the word rhetoric in, and um, I should call it the persuasive triangle instead of the rhetorical triangle. And because a lot of people associate the word rhetoric with political rhetoric, and it has an automatically negative connotation. And I just... I'm glad that I did not listen to those voices because what I've watched unfold over the last six years is a new appreciation for this term and this theory that I bring to everything that I do because it, it is the anchor of all of my work and coaching. And I hear consistently from PhD scientists to you know tech founders that they actually they call out the theory piece that we have covered in the workshop and say, I really enjoyed learning the why. And uh, I've learned that people can handle the word rhetoric in a new context. And I, I kind of look at what I'm doing as something similar to what people do in a scientific environment where they're trying to commercialize their, their research project. I kind of feel like I've commercialized rhetoric outside of the halls of academia and brought it into the public square in a way that um, is refreshing to a lot of people from what I'm from what I'm told. Neat. And, and just go with your gut here on this question, because uh, it's a curiosity question on my part. Do you, mm -hmm. do you tend to work with more uh, entrepreneurial and independent type speakers or executives and leaders within organizations, or is it about a 50-50 mix? 
Well, the first five years, it was more toward the entrepreneurial and innovative groups. And now it's become more 50-50 and, and actually I'm getting more into some of the corporate executive groups um, just through the referral pathways that I'm on now. But what was really interesting is I, I kind of got dropped into this investor pitch land, if you will, from a neighbor of mine who is an, uh, an angel investor. And on the second week of On Point being open, he invited me to come to watch an investor pitch. And I didn't know a lot about the angel VC community at all at that time. And long, you know, a few months later, I had joined this advisory group to provide help to the speakers who pitched once a month to this larger group. And actually, it's because of my involvement in that community that the how-to method was born because what I what I discovered was I kept watching these founders pitch over and over and over again to audiences and the result was some scratching heads and you know can you go back to the fifth slide I didn't really understand what you were talking about or what the problem is that you solve and I saw this really big gap of you know nobody bringing story to their to their pitch and nobody really having an understanding of where the audience was um, at the beginning of the speech, which is knowing nothing about you, knowing nothing about your business and having never seen your slide deck before in their lives. And these, these speakers, and you can replace the word founder with speakers. It doesn't have to be investment related. They just were 90 miles ahead of the audience on a consistent basis. And so after analyzing that a while, I, I built a model to help solidify and solve that problem. You know, it's interesting. Um, I remind people a lot that just because you're a good consultant doesn't mean you're going to be a good speaker. It's so and, true. And just because you're a good speaker doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good interview on radio or television. Right. <laughs> these are all very uh, specific uh, skill sets. Mm -hmm. um, what would you, uh, what tip might you have for someone starting out, maybe with that, that has deep expertise, but maybe is not speaking often or wanting to speak to promote his or her book or his or her work, but that, that sort of emerging speaker um, do you have one or two tips that would be helpful for them? Absolutely. The, the first thing that comes to mind, Mark, is this knowledge of, and of the audience and spending a lot more time thinking about your audience, especially if you're an expert in something you love. The tendency for speakers is to do a lot more talking at the audience than talking to or with them. And what I mean by that is when you get into a flow of what you know, because you love it and because you know it, you want to teach it and tell it to everyone. But what can happen is you can become more of like a reporter style speaker where you're just delivering information at a too fast of a clip and you're not allowing a lot of things to happen with the audience, which is pausing to absorb the information, relating it to them and their lives right now in this moment, and that personalization of the message. And so we all hear, know your audience. And yes, you do need to know your audience. But what I push people to try to do is go one more step and say, you know what, 
What if you could try to be your audience while you're drafting this message? Pick yourself up out of your own shoes and drop them into your audience's shoes. And if you were them, what would you want to hear from you that would be compelling, persuasive, and interesting? Our messages have to be interesting <laughs> or we're going to lose people quickly. So this rhetorical triangle tool, which if you think of an equilateral triangle, it's S at the top for speaker, audience on the left, and M for message, that was Aristotle's tool. He developed that shape and used it to show people, if you want to master your message and really persuade your audience, you have to balance all three parts really well and beautifully to come out feeling like you've nailed it. So I'd say spend more time with the audience and rehearse would be my second big one. Rehearse that message. Mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating. I think that's, um, Cindy, thank you. I think that's very profound. Um, And I, uh, uh, correct me if I I don't have this right, because I want to make sure that I heard it. Um, Imagine yourself one of the audience or being in the audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this carries into that second tip that I touched on about rehearsing. One of the tactics that I share with clients about rehearsing is, okay, hop on a Zoom call with yourself and start recording and then deliver that speech that or message that you want to nail perfectly. Just go ahead and read it. You don't need to try to remember it. Just read it the way you want it to sound. And then when you get that file dropped in your email and it's ready for you to watch, you do you do this twice. You watch it back as the speaker so that you know if you got all the information correct and if you like how you're sounding. But the second time, you put yourself totally away and you plop yourself in those shoes of your audience and you pretend you're sitting in the back of the room and you hit play and you listen to yourself deliver your message and you say, if I was an investor, if I was someone who I wanted to partner with on my book or whatever you wanna put that person in there, if I was my audience, would I like my talk? Would I be interested? And I'm telling you what, I have done this myself and oftentimes I'm like, geez, Cindy, will you hurry up and get through that story? Or, you know, you're talking about yourself again. And so it's so valuable because you just have to, your audience is the one to please, not you. They decide if your message was good or not. You do not. It is all up to them. That's hard work. You know, it is. And that's why people don't do it. And that's just true. People do not see the real value of rehearsing and crafting beautiful messages. They don't usually arrive at an I nailed it moment enough to see the value of doing this. And that's, that breaks my heart because when you have nailed a message and Mark, I bet you have nailed one in your many years. When you have that, I nailed it feeling you are addicted and it is time to figure out the formula for how you did that and to just do it again and again and again. And there is so much magic in that moment. And that is one of the reasons I exist is to help people understand that that hard work is worth it and it will propel you personally and professionally tenfold. I just nail it every time now. (laughs) Well, see, you're a pro. (laughs) Well, 
that, not so much. Um, uh, and I and I certainly have had those presentations that were you know good fits, right fit. <laughs> Um, and, and that seems to be from your website and your, you know, the, uh, a little bit of the research that I did, you use that phrase, nailing it, or I nailed it. Um, can you tell a little bit, talk to us a little bit more about that? Would you like to hear the story behind that phrase? Because there is one. I don't care about our studio audience. I want to, <laughs> I want, I want to hear it. Well, this is the kind of, this is a story, this phrase was, uh, is 25 years old. So when I was about 23, I was working downtown in the Wrigley building in Chicago on Michigan Avenue for BBDO Chicago. And I was in the account services department. I was handed a massive project that I didn't know how to do and that I was terrified of. And I was told that it was, that success of that project was between me and a promotion. And I was going to have to eventually travel out to New Jersey to deliver this competitive review to the Bayer corporate client in New Jersey. Well, Mark, this was a competitive analysis of the cold and flu and sinus and allergy categories, which are enormous and overwhelming. And I'd never done anything like this before. So Fast forward, I completely procrastinated this project and I did not make progress on it. So much so that we had to move the date of my presentation to the client, which was not good. So fast forward, my boss comes to me and says that her boss wants to have a word with me in her office. And so I'm like, not happy about this because Anne is known for making people cry when they leave her office. <laughs> so I go down to Anne's office and I sat down and she said, Cindy, what is going on? Why are you stalling? And I said, I was actually just flat out transparent with her. And I said, Anne, I don't know how to do this. And I'm scared and I'm afraid I'm going to mess it all up. And she said something to me that I still use to this day. She said, Cindy, get it 50% of the way there. And then I will help you get it to the finish line. And I was like, Oh, 50% there. Well, I can, I can do 50%. That's like an F and I can definitely deliver on 50%. Right? But Mark, here's the thing. I remember leaving her office, not crying, but I remember the walk back to my cubicle. And I remember feeling something shift inside of me that was like, Cindy, you can do this. Quit being a scaredy cat and get to work. So it was Memorial Day weekend. And I remember going to the basement of the Wrigley building to watch all of these, you know, this was back in the days of VHSs. I was watching all these, you know, I was doing all the work. And then I got the presentation where I wanted it. And it was like 85 slides. It was a behemoth, monstrous presentation. So we get to Bayer Corporate and it's time to deliver and there's about 200 all-male managers in this room with maybe five women. And I get up to the front of the room and I am telling you, no one in that room knew nearly what I knew when it came to delivering that message. I had practiced it. I had lived it and built it from the very ground up. And I totally killed it for like 90 minutes. I talked and then I finished the presentation. I answered everyone's questions and my boss was sitting in the front row and, and she looked me square in the eyes and shook my hand. And she said, Cindy, you nailed it. 
And I felt it from my toes all the way to the top of my head. I just was on an absolute high because all that work paid off. I saved myself from an I failed it moment. And I have had those. Um, and I just, I wanted it again and again and again. And so that kind of put me on a path toward, you know, I think this public speaking thing is something I could, I could be good at consistently. And so that's the, that's where the I nailed it moment came from originally. <laughs> you know, um, I often share with speakers that the biggest, the biggest, the number one biggest mistake of my career was thinking that I was better than I was. Mm. And, that, and that somehow early on in my career, I could just, if I got, and of course I wasn't speaking often enough, mm. uh, but I just felt like um, I, I guess I felt like I had the gift, um, mm. I, you know, and, and boy, I had, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of bruising moments right. and, and I'm grateful that I had the resolve, uh, to keep going. Um, because not, not every presentation is going to be a home run or a grand slam yeah, that's so true. Can I ask you a question, Mark, about that? When you look back, what do you think was missing in your prep that would have helped you get to that I nailed it feeling in some of those that didn't really land? You know, um, I, I, I think I just go back to my ego. Mm, okay. It, and just simply thinking that I was more prepared than I was, mm -hmm. I, I tend to speak to the same type of audience okay. over and over and over again. I mean, I only ever speak to groups of business owners mm -hmm. and, you know, professionals and entrepreneurs. So uh, seldom am I ever speaking to anyone who gets a salary. Okay. And, and I mean, we're not we're not immune from uh, the I failed it moment even later on in our career. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I spoke True. at a national meeting. Uh, I'm just going to say 15 years ago, two years in a row, and I was rated uh, out, you know, outstanding or near outstanding. Then about eight years later, um, they said, you know, we haven't had Mark back. Our people loved him. And so they booked me again to do a presentation and I was rated one of the worst wow. um, of, the, of the conference and the okay. convention. Huh. And so I, I think it's something that no matter where you are on your journey, what you are sharing with us applies to the seasoned veteran Yep. as well as the emerging um, speaker. Well, that's what I was thinking when you asked me, what are a couple of tips that our new people or emerging speakers could use? And my first thought in my head was everyone needs to hear this, not just those who are emerging. I mean, they are going to hear it differently, but it matters not. We're all, we all need to keep working this muscle and strengthening it. And there's just no, whether it's a newer and bigger audience, whether it, or maybe new content that you've never tried before. These tips are useful to all of us mm -hmm. at some level. And we should be bringing in new stories and 
new content and, and new experiences, which also means that that new those new pieces and bits are not as practiced right. uh, and rehearsed. I think what happens if you get good at telling new stories, because that's a really great point, Mark, people get tired of telling the same stories as well as obviously hearing them. But when you can think up new storylines quickly and you've got a good way of sharing them and you kind of know the structure of story, you can, you can really work those in more easily with more practice. And it's more fun for you when you're having fun as a speaker, because you're telling a new story that just happened yesterday, you're more excited and your energy changes. Whereas if you're telling stories you've been telling for years, it gets kind of boring and your audience can see it right away. You know, our audiences are so darn perceptive. They can see every little twitch of our eyes or our size or whatever might be happening. They know if you want to be there and if you're excited or if you're just going through the motions or they can see the wheels turning in your head. It's just, uh, you can't hide from your audience. (laughs) That's true. Um, uh, one of one of our participants, uh, Steve, has a question. Yeah. Um, how 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 do you see what role does humor play in a presentation today? Whether it's a workshop, a two day training, a keynote speech. I that's a great question, Steve. And I actually have come across two or three professionals at who, who specifically focus on how to bring humor into public speaking. And it's not an area of expertise for me, but I think it's really important. And I like to do it whenever I can, but I don't typically plan it. I mean, the, the, the things I just shared earlier on about getting those belly laughs from the, the men in the room was completely unplanned and just due to my energy and adrenaline in the moment to try to get that level of comfort in the room, which I really like. If I feel like I know people, then I am just so much more relaxed. That's why I do so much investigative work before I speak to any group, finding out who they are, where they live, what they like, what they read, what they do. Um, But I would say, Steve, humor, humor is important. It, It can land beautifully and it can also not. And so sarcasm is not the kind of humor I would typically suggest. Self-deprecating humor works beautifully though. (laughs) um, You know, gentle and um, harmless types of self-deprecating humor are are fun and it really relaxes the room and the group. And there's a lot of connective power to humor. Cindy, I just want to take a moment to just acknowledge you. You have such an easy way about you and just such a great story, even in sharing your story. Mm, thank um, you. Of, of being a young professional and uh, being fearful of this presentation. I, I, I kind of feel like I have a new friend. Yeah, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, you, can you share... Um, maybe a client success story or two with us? Do you have some examples in your back pocket of, of ways you've worked with people and brought them to I nail it moments? Sure, I, I have one in mind that was a 
I mean, I have it in mind because it was the biggest win that one of my clients ever had, but it started ex with extremely humble beginnings. And this person's name is Jen. And she came to me when her company was very early, very new. And what's unique about Jen is that she was an accomplished public speaker and she was a really strong executive and had climbed through the rankings at Starbucks and some other large corporate environments. But when she got into the entrepreneur world, she knew quickly and admitted quickly that she did not understand investor pitch psychology and mechanics. And she said, Cindy, I quickly understood that this was a new animal and that I needed some help with this. And so Jen was actually one of my earliest clients to learn what is now called the how-to model. And that's actually one of the pieces that Henry wrote about for um, an article this past summer. But Jen learned this model that I, that I teach to entrepreneurs and groups and began to utilize it in her investor pitch presentations. And it really allowed her to catapult her, her business, her investment portfolio grew. And her recent win is $7.4 million from an alphabet company on the West Coast. And that was, that was an enormous, exciting win for, for her. Um, Another exciting win from the summer was actually more around written messaging. So sometimes I'm asked to help a company write an executive summary, which is my entire company on two pages or less. And this particular startup had highly technical scientific terminology and uh, ideas, and they ended up placing first in all three of their pitch competitions through um, a NASA sponsored pitch event and they raked in 3.4 million in government funding to start building their their wonderful product line which is just a huge win and a lot of relief so um I there are many more but those are two that come to mind because those are two big ones now that I've kind of been at this a little while I'm starting to see those those numbers get into some exciting zones and uh, but just as exciting are times when I find out that someone reduced the number of their fillers in a speech from 63 to 12 like that's also a really big win for that person or that they weren't sweating or drenching their clothing small things also are are big things thank you Cindy um you have um uh, a mastery program uh, that you deliver, and um, if if rumor has it correct, um, you, you you've got something uh, that um, you would consider a bit of a gift uh, yep. for our listeners today. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? I'd be happy to. The mastery program that I developed is for people who want to come out of it and completely know how to nail any presentation or pitch that they are ever going to deliver. And it is A to Z, soup to nuts. And what I'm offering folks today as a free gift is module number one. And that is a 28-minute in-depth discovery of the rhetorical triangle. And it is a wonderful module that will help guide you into asking yourself questions about the message you're building and what things you need to be thinking about when it comes to speaker and your credibility. 
audience and your audience and where and why you need to hit them at heart. And also the M is message. So how are you going to structure that message? Um, that's the first module in the program. And then the others, um, module two is the how-to model. Module three is around slide savvy and how to nail your slide deck. Because if you love your slide deck, you will love delivering it if it's beautiful and it makes a very big difference, especially virtually. We're kind of asking people to watch TV while we present. So watch your typos and make it, make it beautiful. Module four is on the rehearsal trifecta that I developed and teach. And then the fifth module is how to master the Q&A sessions that you can't always predict, but need to still nail because it's still part of your presentation. So I'm offering the first module, which is the, um, the deep dive into rhetorical theory that kind of touched on here, but I go deep on in that 28 minute video. Oh, thank you. Did so I much. offer something else, Mark? Was there something else that I said I was going to do? I think um, that was I, the bulk of it. I think that was a gift for the interviewer. Um, uh, uh, wasn't there? Was it? Wasn't there a gift for me? Oh no, no, no! I, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. You're kidding. Uh, let me think on that. Can we have um, pause? No. <laughs> I, 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 I've got a, a question for you. Um, how do you describe or possibly work differently? Um, I tend to see two different types of speakers. Mm -hmm. Those that are more conversational mm -hmm. on the platform, even if they're speaking to a larger group, um, they seem to be connecting a little bit more with mm -hmm. an audience. There are those that are more performance-based. Mm. Um, well, how do you see those two different types uh, of speakers? And, 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 and where do you land on how to coach those differently? If there, if there is a difference. Yeah, well, I'm, um, I would like you to explain more about the performance category that you're, that you're thinking of. Can you give me an example or some things that they do that put them in that category? Um, I, I tend to see, and of course, I've, over 39 years, I've been in, I've sat in many audiences. And uh, uh, the way that I look at a perform, Tony Robbins is a performer. Mm-hmm. Um, he's off sure. the charts. Yep. Um, there are other speakers, uh, well-known speakers in the National Speakers Association that are more performance-driven. Some, mm -hmm. Sometimes we sit in awe yeah. of, of them. We might not be tempted to go up and shake their hand mm -hmm. or, or connect with, it's like, it's like we almost put them on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. We're inspired by them, we're in awe of them, but it was as if we were watching them. Yeah, okay, I'm versus, with you. Versus, versus those that are a little bit more conversational, a little bit more connecting. Um, for those speakers, we tend to want to um, maybe go up, shake their hand, buy their book, um, just hope, hope for a moment to just say thank you so much. Yep. Your, your message touched me deeply and I'm going through something right now. And, and this was incredibly helpful. We might not do that to a performer type. Right. Right. I love it. Well, this is timely because on 
Friday or Thursday of last week at the conference I was at, I was in the audience of Dan Clark, who is one of the renowned speakers globally. Um, and I, I am that person and I might, this might be a tip for people. I would say, don't be afraid to go up and talk to those people, because that's, that's something I've learned over the years is that I'm that person that is just like, and I did that with Dan. And I said, Hey, Dan, do you, I would love to grab your, grab your ear for 30 minutes. And we ended up out at a group dinner later that night. And I sat next to him and got a chance to talk to him quite a bit, but you can learn so much from those folks if you are able to get their attention. But to your question around how I might coach them differently, I'm not, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not sure I have a from the hip answer. I, I would say that uh, the conversational speakers are, as you said, so much more approachable. And if you're starting out and you want to pick one or the other, we want to go after that conversation of, uh, speaker and have the relationship building that that's what you want anyway, right? If you're going to sell without, you know, being slimy, that's the, the type of relationship that you want to be building is an authentic one. I actually know a couple of speakers who are overly performers. They're overly performance-based on the stage. And so if I watch some of their tip videos, it's, um, it's, it's too perfect. And there is something that inside just bothers me about that. There's a little bit of humanness that we need and desire when we watch a speaker and that makes them connect with us. So a couple of filler words here and there very sparsely. I don't mind that. It's when you get to 10, 12, 50 that you know it's a problem, but you'll listen to some of my stuff and occasionally I'll throw a filler out there or mess up a word, but that's because I'm human and I'm speaking in the moment and, and trying to string along a good story, right? For the, but if I'm coaching a performance type speaker, I'm going to work on the story with them the most. Mm -hmm. I would say how to find that moment of reveal or really structuring. And those are kind of Ted, Ted style speakers that we might come across. And I'd say that the work they need to do the most lies in their storytelling and really bringing that to life with just masterful adjectives, sentence structure. We get really into script writing with a performance level speaker. Mm -hmm. People don't think a lot about that, but your sentences need to be shorter, period, all the time when you're Dan speaking is, orally. Um, as, as you observe, Dan is a master. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I, I, I know Dan, I've known him for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would actually put him in the category of both. Um, yes. He, he can move in and out of connecting and conversation mode and performance mm -hmm. mode. Yes, I would agree with you because I experienced both of those things with him just this past weekend. And he's a masterful storyteller and he has more stories than anyone I think I've ever met in my life. And that makes him eternally interesting. And yet he can also connect with you on a personal level and, and listen in when, which is a huge part of speaking is listening. <laughs> I, I think the challenge for so many consultants and and uh, would-be speakers is we've, we've and I, I know I did this early on in my career, I made up a story 
that that's what I thought you were supposed to be was more performance driven. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's how I fell short. So, you know, speech after speech after speech, thinking I had to get up, you know, and yeah. deliver this um, magical, powerful speech. And then at some point, um, I mean, I can point to a few examples, but I just finally relaxed and mm-hmm. just started having a more conversation, more of a conversational approach. And, and boy, that was a turning point. Yep. Uh, you can the, be yourself. In That's the evolution thing. of my career. Um, yeah. I've got one last question. Okay. And, and that is, it's uh, 10 years from today. What what does your what does your business look like, and what is, what does your vision for your business look like ten years from now? Well, I would say that my crazy lofty goal with the work that I do in my life is to try to help unseat fear of public speaking from the number one slot of mm-hmm. things that people are afraid to do, and. I, I mean that I, I think that the fact that that proverbial list even exists and is burned in our brains for eternity is a huge part of the problem. But what I'm out to do is one client, one group at a time, encourage people to recognize that public speaking is a skill that you can learn. You are not born with good public speaking skills or not born with them. And that's the end of the story. Yes. Some people are inclined to it and better at it than others, just like math or finances or writing, but you can learn to be a better speaker and it actually can be fun too. It's incredibly rewarding. I think people see more and more the value of learning to be a good presenter and an engaging presenter, but 10 years from now, I have reached 10 times as many people in 10 times as many places or a hundred times. And I have expanded to service just more and more people in more and more corporations to, to be chipping away at that goal. I don't know what that looks like right now, but that would be kind of my when I hang up my hat someday, I want to to feel as though I put a big um, a big, pulled that, pulled that number one slot down off the, off the ledge. (laughs) Well, that is a worthy aim. Um, Cindy, thank you so much. And I speak for, uh, Henry as well. I I hope that you will consider me and our authors and Henry, uh, your new best friends. And (laughs) if we can ever, um, do a favor for you or uh, support you in any way, shape, or form, we want to do that. Would everyone just kind of uh, give her a big round of applause? And, <laughs> and, and I also just want to say thank you for the good work that you are called uh, and compelled to do. Yes. Oh, this is so much fun. I really enjoyed spending this time with all of you live and those listening to the recording. I hope you'll reach out and connect with me. I'm super active on social and would love to hear that you heard this and have any feedback. I'm always open to that too. So Mark, this was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. And my name is Mark LeBlanc and I'm the chairman of Indie Books International, where we believe that writing the right book 
can create a turning point in the direction uh, of your dream. For more information, please go to indiebooksintl.com. That is www.indiebooksintl.com. Thank you for joining us this week, and that's a wrap. Thank <laughs> you.